Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and we're delighted to welcome back for the second time uh, Mr. Ray Dinninger, whose current book is One Last Read, The Collected Works of the World's Slowest Sports Writer. Love that title. We'll be, we'll, we, we need to find out why you are the world's slowest sports writer. I may be the world's slowest librarian. But Ray Dinninger has won four Emmy Awards as a writer and producer of NFL films. Before that, he covered the NFL for the Philadelphia Bulletin and the Inquirer. Excuse, oh, excuse me, for the Daily News. Sorry about that, not the Inquirer. Uh, in 1995, he was enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he was co-author of the Eagles Encyclopedia, which he discussed previously here on Book Chat. Ray, welcome back to Book Chat. Great to be here, Carl. Great, thanks. Uh, Ray, you mentioned how lucky and grateful you are to have a career in sports. Uh, I realized uh, that the book shows that in addition to luck, you also have a great flair for writing. So, you know, being grateful, but also having the great flair has made you the success you are. So I'm uh, curious, all great sports writers have their mentors. Who were yours? Well, um, growing up in Philadelphia, the newspaper we had delivered to our front door every day was the Philadelphia Bulletin. Uh, and I read it faithfully every day. And uh, my first real influence from a writing standpoint was uh, a writer named Sandy Grady, I'm sure. who was a sports columnist for the Philadelphia Bulletin through those years. And uh, back in those days, if you were a sports columnist, you wrote, you were in the paper six days a week. I mean, today, today a busy sports columnist is in the paper three days a week. Back then you were expected to be in there every day except Saturday. So Sandy was writing columns uh, and was in the paper virtually every day. And it was reading his stuff that made me aware that there was a, an art to sports writing. And so from the time, I mean, I was quite young. I mean, I was freshman, sophomore in high school. I would sit down and I would try and imitate Sandy's writing because I was a big sports fan. Mm -hmm. and, and I was just fascinated by how he could watch the same game I watched and take those same impressions and emotions and turn them into this kind of poetry. So I started trying to imitate him at a really early age. And uh, I guess if I had an influence or a mentor it would, it would probably be Sandy. And, you know, the great thrill was in 1969 when the Philadelphia Bulletin actually hired me when I was just mm -hmm. one year out of college. Uh, I went to work at the sports department with the Bulletin and the sports editor, Jack Wilson, gave me the desk next to Sandy Grady. So uh, I had the opportunity to actually work alongside the guy who was probably my single biggest influence. Nice. And did, did you do writing, sports writing in college, high school, anything like that? Did you do that? Uh, yeah, I, I wrote for the high school newspaper and I, I also wrote for the college newspaper. Uh, I was a sports editor of the Temple News uh, when I was there. I also worked at the campus radio station. Um, I knew about halfway through high school that writing was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. It was just a question of what kind of writing, if it was going to be books, if it was going to be newspapers, if it was going to be screenplays, if it was going to be whatever. But I, I had a pretty strong feel about writing, and I also had a real love of sports. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, what I was thinking was, boy, if I could somehow take my love of sports and this interest of writing and make those two work together, wouldn't that be ideal? And luckily for me, it happened. Well, great. Okay, why do you call yourself the world's slowest sports writer? Because I was. <laughs> because I was the world's slowest sports writer. There was, a, there was, um, there was really only one other writer um, who was probably slower than me on a consistent basis. Uh, and that was a fellow named Barry Lorge, who, who wrote for the Washington Post. And then later left the Washington Post and went to the San Diego Union. And we always felt that the reason he left Washington and moved to San Diego was he was such a slow writer that the three hour time difference actually <laughs> allowed him to get his stories into the paper. Um, 
That may be that may be quite true. I mean, Barry always denied it, but I always thought there was some truth to it. Um, every game I ever covered, I was the last guy out of the press box, unless Barry was there, in which case he was. Uh, but I was the last guy out of the press box at 25 consecutive Super Bowls. Every one from Super Bowl five to the last one I covered to Super Bowl 30, I was. I was the last guy out turning out the lights uh, after 25. I, I can safely say that's a that's a Super Bowl record that'll never be broken. <laughs> Did you find that sort of uh, disconcerting at first in the early part of your career? Why has everybody done it before me? Or? Yeah, I did. Um, I did. The, the only reason it, it, it ever really happened was because at the Bulletin and the Daily News, I always worked for what were afternoon newspapers, which now obviously are a thing of the past. Right. There are no more afternoon newspapers. Yeah. But when I started at the Bulletin, uh, and then went to the Daily News. It was truly an afternoon newspaper. And so your deadline was 5 a.m., 6 a.m. I mean, you could cover a game and file your story at 5 o'clock the next morning. And it would still make the paper. And my way of doing things was if I had that much time to write, I used all of it. Feeling that in rewriting and polishing and, and rethinking stuff that, you know, I could make it better. I mean, I just could, I just couldn't let it go yeah. until I had to let it go, um, which drove my editors crazy and all the people on the desk crazy. I mean, I would cover an Eagles game at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and file my story at six o'clock the next morning, <laughs> and they would think that in the meantime that I had gone, you know, I had gone out to dinner, I had right. taken my wife dancing, I had gone to a movie, I had done, and I hadn't done any of that. I had been sitting at the keyboard the whole time. Um, I just couldn't allow. I, I would just as whatever how much time was available to me, I took it. And I wish I could say it always made the copy better. I don't know that it always did. But in my own sort of creative, <laughs> in my own creative yeah. process, such as it was, it just took me a very long time. And I always, I always used to say, I'm going to get faster. You know, this season, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. That I would impose, I would say, pretend that you have to have it in by three hours. Right. Pretend you had, and I couldn't. I knew what the case was, and I would always... Right to the very end, I was the slowest guy in the business. Right. Um, you had the honor of introducing Tommy McDonald into the Football Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. uh, how did this come about? Well, Tommy, um, Tommy was my uh, boyhood hero. Uh, growing up in Philadelphia and going to Eagles games with my parents, mm -hmm. starting at starting at Connie Mack Stadium back in '56. Uh, Tommy came. Tommy came to the Eagles in '57. And uh, right away, I mean, I just I identified with him. He was he was only five feet nine. He was the smallest guy in the field. Played with tremendous energy and enthusiasm. Oh. And as a kid going to the games, you watched him, and he just um, it was just very easy for you to identify with him. You know, he was a little guy. You were a little guy. You loved playing the game. He played with an obvious love of the game. Um, and so he was my favorite player. And years later, when I became a sports writer and I became the Philadelphia voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. uh, I began sort of campaigning to try and get Tommy in the Hall of Fame because, not just because he was my boyhood hero, but because I felt he truly deserved it. If you look at his career, I mean, 84 touchdown receptions. At the time that he retired, only one player in the history of pro football had more, and that was Don Hudson. So to me, Tommy should have been in the Hall of Fame many years before. So I began sort of a campaign to try and get Tommy in he found out about that and he called me and said, uh, I want to thank you for what you're doing for me and I want you to know that if I ever do get in, uh, I want you to be my presenter. Um, and so, uh, it took a while, but in 1998, Tommy got in the Hall of Fame and uh, he made good on his promise. He called me and said, I want you to be my presenter. And that is really one of the biggest, 
thrills of my life to be part of that whole induction weekend in Canton, Ohio, riding in the convertible through the streets of Canton up to the Hall of Fame, and then standing on the steps of the Hall of Fame and giving the presentation speech for the guy who was your boyhood hero. I mean, when you think about that, and that was one of the things I wrote about in the book was, when you think about that, you realize what a 10 million to one shot that is, mm -hmm. you know, that, that all of that came together for you. But in many ways, it just kind of told the story of my life because I really do think in every way, it's been an extraordinary life. And uh, most of it, I just think is good fortune. It's a great story, and a great honor, well-deserved. Another question though, if so many great stories and there are so many great experiences in your life when, within sports, what would be, maybe if we could, I don't know, boil down to about maybe your five most memorable experiences as a, as a sports writer? As a sports writer? Well, the number one, I think would have to be the 1980 World Series and seeing the Phillies, cover, covering the Phillies mm -hmm. and watching them and writing about them finally winning a world championship. It was the first time in their history and to this point, the only time in their history and they've been around for more than a century. So that would be number one. Um, number two, would be the Flyers' first Stanley Cup. Uh, seeing that team uh, that was known as the Broad Street Bullies, yeah. uh, all these young guys from these little towns in the hinterlands of Canada, uh, they came together here in a city that was new to hockey. I mean, hockey had only been in Philadelphia since 66, 67. This was 73. So there were a lot of people in Philadelphia that didn't even understand hockey, didn't know hockey. But the city was so starved for a winner that when this team started to win and won in the fashion in which they won, which was kind of this real roughneck, we're taking no guff kind of approach mm -hmm. that the fans here really liked, that when they began to run through the playoffs, I mean, the, the emotional charge that went through this city was, was tremendous. And when they finally did beat the Boston Bruins in the finals and won the Stanley Cup, I remember the next day they, they, had, they scheduled a parade for Center City, Philadelphia, and the police expected maybe, they said maybe there'll be 100,000 people. Well, it was two million. Uh, and what they didn't count on was they just thought they would have hockey fans out there. But what they had was they had all the people from the Delaware Valley that just wanted to celebrate something. Yeah. And there were a lot of people out there that wouldn't know a red line from a blue line or a, or a goalie from a gold judge. But they just knew that a Philadelphia team had won and they were happy and they wanted a party. And being there and seeing that and watching the players and the players' families experience that. And that whole kind of way that they really changed, I think, the self-image of Philadelphia. I mean, lifted the spirits of the mm -hmm. city in such a way. Uh, that was a great thing to witness and a great thing to write about. Uh, number three would be the Eagles winning the NFC Championship under Dick Vermeil going to their first Super Bowl. That bitter cold day at Veterans Stadium and they beat the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, that was very memorable. Um, the other, the other ones that I would, the other ones that sort of come to my mind were the, uh, I covered the Roberto Duran, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard fight in, in New Orleans when uh, Roberto Duran threw up his hands and said, no mas, uh, which those of us that were there couldn't believe our eyes that Roberto Duran, who was the, the most ferocious uh, warrior in, in boxing circles and a man who absolutely swore that he would fight to the death if he had to, throwing up his hands and quitting in the middle of a fight was just unthinkable. Uh, and... Uh, those of us that were there, I mean, it was, we just couldn't believe our eyes. So I'll always remember that. And the other one is memorable for a bizarre reason. I had never covered a Boston Marathon. And so um, the paper said, you know, you really ought to, sometime in your life, you ought to cover the Boston Marathon. So they sent me up to a Boston Marathon and it just happened to be the Boston Marathon of Rosie Ruiz, who uh, turned out to be a fake winner of the women's marathon. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and I, I just remember being in the interview room when she came in uh, and started doing this interview. And now I have to admit, I, I had never been to a Boston Marathon before. I don't know that much about marathoning. I don't know that much about the sport. But five questions into her press conference, even I knew that this was a fake. <laughs> uh, and so uh, watching that whole thing play out and, and having the only Boston Marathon I ever covered turn out to be the, and people always remember, the Rosie Ruiz Marathon, uh, that that sneaks into my top five, and that's also in the book. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You would include that in your top five because one of the great features of the book it's it's not just about the big heroes of sports, but it's about the little people who went about their own sports and were in their, in their own ways very heroic. Could you uh, maybe mention uh, you know a couple names that stood out? I remember you talk about Mary Decker or Ver Vicky Huber or. Mark Alcorn, people yeah. like that. Well, that, when I was putting the when I was putting the book together, when I was choosing the pieces to include, it would have been real easy to make it an all football book, and it would have been real yeah. easy to make it an all Philly book. Um, but I, I just wanted the book to kind of represent the full scope of my experience, which was covering events all over the world right. and covering professional sports and amateur sports and major sports and so-called minor sports. So I took a little bit of everything, and yeah, I, I, Vicky Huber to me was a was a really wonderful character. I mean, she was a, a local girl. She was from Wilmington, Delaware, went to Villanova University, uh, became an outstanding runner at Villanova, and, and worked her way up to the point where she became one of the outstanding middle distance runners in, in the entire United States. And, uh, and I did a profile of her before the Seoul Olympics uh, when she actually made the team and uh, went over and competed in Seoul and told, and told her story about how she reach that level and the pressure that's involved for an athlete who, you know, I, I developed a tremendous amount of respect for the quote unquote amateur athletes that mm -hmm. I covered. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike Tetty, the rower uh, I wrote about from St. Joseph's University. Um, I mean, I, I really respected those athletes because of how hard they worked, the price that they paid for very little money. I mean, back then there was no financial reward. Right. So after dealing with millionaire, multi-millionaire athletes, professional athletes, to go and cover a rower who had two full-time jobs uh, and had to get up at five o'clock in the morning to row and train on the just on the chance that he could make an Olympic team and understand that he could work four years under those conditions and push himself that hard and still maybe misqualifying by a hundredth of a second. Uh, I mean, to me, that sort of sacrifice and that sort of commitment was a remarkable thing to witness. So I always enjoyed writing about those people and. I made sure I included some of those profiles in the book, too. Yeah, and it really does add a whole uh, other dimension to the book. I'm Carl Hallecker, and our guest is Ray Didinger, the Emmy Award-winning writer uh, for NFL Films and, of course, the author of our book today, One Last Read, The Collected Works of the World's Slowest Sports Writer. Uh, among the many, uh, you keep laughing, you really, you really enjoy your own title there, don't you? Well, <laughs> well I, I, yeah, everybody, I've gotten teased so much about yeah. it, but unless you actually sat next to me in the press box during a game, you'll understand that that's no joke. <laughs> but, but it's a great story, and there's a, you know, we were talking before, and the introduction to your book is just, just great. You said it was like 15,000 words, which is a pretty substantial piece, and there's just lots of such great information about you and Thanks, what goes into your writing. So uh, it's definitely anybody who buys this book, and everybody should make sure you read the introduction. Uh, two uh, gentlemen you talked about, uh, Marion Motley and Bill Willis, came before Jackie Robinson. 
Uh, tell us about them and why they aren't household names like Robinson. Well, uh, they were African-American athletes uh, and were part of the, uh, of the first group of players that sort of reintegrated professional football. Uh, there had been uh, black players playing in the, in, the, in what was then pro football in the 1920s. There was a fellow named Fritz Pollard, who was actually a player coach for a team mm -hmm. called the Akron Pros. But for the, most of the 30s and then the 40s, um, there were no black players and no one would sign black players. Uh, but after the Second World War, Paul Brown, who was coaching the, the Cleveland Browns in the All-American Football Conference, uh, had two guys uh, from Ohio that he knew that had played for him at Ohio State, uh, were Marion Motley and Bill Willis, and he wanted them to play for the Cleveland Browns, and he had no hesitation about signing them. So he did and brought them to training camp. And in the National Football League, uh, the Los Angeles Rams signed uh, two black players, uh, Kenny Washington and Woody Stroud, who later became an actor. Yeah, from Spartacus, uh, movie Spartacus. Correct. Right, yeah. So those four guys uh, actually sort of broke the color line in professional football a year before Jackie Robinson broke it in baseball. Nobody really knows that. They always mm -hmm. think of Jackie Robinson being the ultimate pioneer of African-American athletes. Mm -hmm. But in fact, these four gentlemen did it in pro football a year earlier. and. Uh, I have great admiration for what they did because everything that Jackie Robinson went through in baseball, they went through in football in a more physical game where people could yeah. actually take a physical yeah. approach to beating them up and, yeah. and stepping on their hands and abusing yeah. them, which they did regularly. And I, I really respect these guys because they never fought back. I mean, they only, re they only responded to it by playing better. Yeah. Uh, and both Motley and Bill Willis uh, are now in the pro football, were such yeah. great players that they are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the only thing that you think about sometimes, and I interviewed both of these gentlemen, and the story appears in the book, is the pressure that they felt, and they talk about it now, is how much pressure was on them. What if we failed? You know, what if we couldn't stand up to it? What if we couldn't perform? You know, it would have just, it would have just played into all the stereotypes that existed about African-American athletes then. Oh, they're not tough enough. They won't play for the team. They can't count on them in a big spot. That stuff was being said back then. And it was up to Motley and Willis to disprove that. And they did. And they disproved it to such a degree that they're in the Hall of Fame. But the reason you ask about why people don't know it as readily as they know Jackie Robinson's story is that pro football wasn't anywhere near as big yeah. as Major League Baseball at that time. I mean, in the 40s, it's hard to believe now, given how big pro football is now. But back in those days, I mean, pro football certainly wasn't as big as baseball, wasn't as big as college football. I mean, pro football was maybe only the sixth or seventh most popular sport mm -hmm. in America. So a lot of the stuff that was going on large sections of the country were unaware of. Yeah, interesting. Um, you say that in your book that if you could go back in time and interview uh, one athlete, well, you tell us who it is and why Why that person. It would be Jim Thorpe. Uh, because I, I wrote a series of articles for the Daily News about uh, Jim Thorpe's family's quest uh, to have his Olympic medals restored. Um, Thorpe was, you could make a case, was probably the greatest athlete uh, that this country has ever produced. Uh, what he did as a football player, uh, and a baseball player, and as a track man uh, are, are almost unprecedented. I mean, he was, he was Bo Jackson. He was a better version of Bo Jackson before his time. Went to the Olympic Games as a relatively untrained track man and won both the decathlon and the pentathlon in the same Olympic Games. Um, but he had played, what happened was he had played semi-pro baseball one summer when he was a student at Carlisle College, Carlisle Indian School in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Uh, he had played, his coach, Pop Warner, had set up a deal for him to play with his semi-pro baseball team 
that summer. Uh, and Jim did. And they just basically paid him room and board. They gave him $5 a month. And so after he goes to Stockholm for the Olympics and has this great success and he comes back as a hero, uh, a newspaper man quite innocently was interviewing a guy who was a, the manager of that baseball team. And he looks at a picture on the desk and he sees the picture and he says, that looks like Jim Thorpe. And the guy says, well, that was Jim Thorpe. And he said, he played here two summers ago. And the reporter said, but this, didn't he get paid? And the guy said, well, we paid him five bucks a month, room and board, like we paid everybody else. Well, that, of course, made him, by definition, then, a professional. And back in those days, you couldn't compete in the Olympics if you had ever taken money for anything. So there was a big investigation. The story was reported. And the Olympic Committee stripped Jim Thorpe of his medals. And so many years later, many years after Jim Thorpe's death, his family was on a quest to get his medals restored and his records rest restored to the record book. And so I wrote about that mm -hmm. and I covered that. And in the course of doing it, I, I just found him to be one of the most interesting figures, I think, in American history because he touched on so many levels, not just athletic, but social. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I just, uh, I included that story in the book because I just think there are a lot of people that know the name Jim Thorpe, but they don't understand what a great athlete he was and why his story was relevant then and is equally relevant today. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned that only once did you walk away from an event, you were assigned to cover. Uh, why did you do this and what did you write about instead? It was the NCAA championship basketball game uh, played here at the Spectrum uh, between North Carolina and Indiana. Uh, and uh, the reason I walked out was it was the day that Ronald Reagan was shot. And uh, Reagan had been shot that afternoon. He was still in surgery, literally, as the game was about to be played. And there was this big debate between the university presidents and the TV networks about right. should we play the game, should we postpone the game? And they decided to go ahead and play it. And my feeling was that it was, to me, it was, it was, it was such an obscenity to go ahead and play this basketball yeah. game while the president of the United States is lying on an operating table and you don't know if he's gonna live out the night or right. not. Uh, I, I, said, I called the office and I said, you know what, I don't wanna be part of this. I don't wanna stay here. Uh, and I said, I don't care who, I, I literally don't care who wins this game. And they said, fine, if that's the way you feel, come back to the office. But you're still gonna have to write a column. But you're gonna have to write about why you left. So I did. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, I wasn't the only guy at the game. We had people there to write about the, right. the basketball game. But I went back and I wrote a story about how, how just offended I was by the decision that was made. And I felt it was wrong then and I still feel it was wrong today. Right. Well, Ray, uh, unfortunately for us, uh, our time has run out. There's so many other great stories I'd like to hear and uh, just invite our audience to come borrow the book or better yet, buy the book because there's so much to learn and so much to enjoy in your book. One last read, The Collected Works of the World's Slowest Sports Writer, who we now know is Ray Dinger. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Carl Holliker, and you've been watching Book Chat. Mm -hmm.